0: Welcome to the Contending for Christ Apologetics podcast, where Danny seeks to empower believers to defend their faith. This fight is internal, defending against false teachings that are creeping into the church as well as our hearts and minds. It is also external, with believers needing to know how they can solidify and defend their beliefs. So sit back and relax as we contend for Christ. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics. The last episode in the top 10 reasons why I personally uh, believe in God, that was actually a precursor to the episode that I'm going to be talking about today that you tuned in. So thank you for checking it out. Surprise for you. If you listened to that particular episode, uh, you would have noted how my belief in God is, in my eyes, really substantiated By various evidences, not only for an intelligent being, but also for God, and also for the divinity of Jesus Christ seen through the resurrection. I'm going to be doing an episode talking about the resurrection of Christ as well. Uh, Some competing theories that seek to uh, disprove the resurrection but basically through evidential apologetics, which evidential apologetics, check out my previous episode about it, is really just taking the evidences that we see around the world, in the universe, in our minds, things like that, to look at the necessity of a being, the necessity of God. And so the top 10 reasons I believe in God episode is a play on today's episode, like I said, and we're gonna look at a topic that's called abductive reasoning abductive reasoning and in the end we're going to talk a little bit about circumstantial evidence you see I was first introduced to uh, the the topic the subject of abductive reasoning by J. Warner Wallace in his book cold case Christianity if you haven't checked out cold case Christianity or J. Warner Wallace's ministry I would highly encourage you to do so uh, J. Warner Wallace is a former homicide detective and just similar to Lee Strobel was a journalist and an investigator Uh, He took the methodology he would employ on a court case scene as a homicide detective and used the same methodology to examine the evidence for God. Again, this is evidential apologetics. And so he really introduced me to the terminology of abductive reasoning. And while the terminology was new to me, I had actually understood Uh, Though I didn't know what it was called, I understood the methodology and I had already believed in it and subscribed to it and I'm pretty sure once you understand what it is and I explain it uh, based on his book, you're going to realize that you subscribe to it and you've heard of or at least used the methodology in your life as well. You see, abductive reasoning is simply a process where we look at different evidences we review the various evidences to see, for a particular situation, what is the most plausible explanation for that situation. Like I said, J. Warner Wallace illustrates abductive reasoning through going through a cold case homicide, meaning that after 48 hours, I believe the case goes cold. and basically means that you start losing the ability to solve the case because uh, witnesses are harder to find. You have uh, evidences that are probably scattered and and harder to get hold of, things like that. So it becomes a cold case, and so they're harder to solve. And we're gonna look at J. Warner Wallace's process of abductive reasoning through his previous cold case methodology. We're gonna look at it through that natural lens, and then we're gonna end up transferring it into a spiritual lens to see how it's valid in trying to discern from an evidential apologetic standpoint the existence of a God. Now, the actual example I'm gonna use is very similar to cold case Christianity. And I hope it is going to be used to paint imagery in your mind for the sake of really understanding the process. So if you would, bear with me, uh, close your eyes for a minute as we go through all this closer, except if you're driving. If you're driving or you're doing something that closing your eyes could be dangerous, uh, don't close your eyes. If you're laying in your bed listening to this, uh, don't close your eyes because you're probably going to fall asleep. But anyways, uh, imagine you walked into a kitchen. You walked into a kitchen and you saw someone lying on the kitchen floor who was dead. So you see this dead guy on the floor in the kitchen. There's really four possible explanations, what Wallace points out, as far as how this individual died. He could have died of natural causes, meaning a heart attack. Could have been an accident. Maybe he slipped and fell, broke his neck or something. Uh, it could have been a suicide. Suicide may have taken pills, overdosed. Or it could have been murder, where he was poisoned, possibly. You see, just by walking into the kitchen and seeing a dead body on the floor isn't enough evidence to determine how the individual actually died. It could really be either for those reasons. Now suppose when you walked in, you ended up seeing that there's a pool of blood under the guy, and the guy actually has a butcher knife in his stomach. You can pretty much rule out that he died of natural causes because people don't typically uh, die of natural causes with a knife in their belly let alone have a pool of blood uh, from a natural cause, whether it be a heart attack, whatever the case is. Now, he could have died accidentally. Maybe he fell on the knife or could have been suicide or it could have even been murder. So we don't know. So we can rule out the fact of it being a natural cause of death. So let's add a little bit more to this situation. So you walk in, there's a dead guy on the kitchen floor with a knife in his stomach. Now imagine you see numerous puncture wounds on his chest and in, her, in his stomach from the same butchered knife. And from the remaining causes of death you have accident, suicide, or murder. We could really rule out the accidental cause of death because it's probably not very reasonable that he accidentally fell on this knife numerous times. Remember you see bu- puncture wounds on his chest and in his stomach and then the knife actually lodged in his stomach with a pool of blood on the ground so accidental can really be rolled out it's not reasonable that he would fall over constantly on this knife so there's really two choices left with this situation it could have either been a suicide or it could have been murder so finally you imagine uh, imagine that you discovered by uh, a black light you used a black light in the kitchen and you discovered that there were bloody footprints that were cleaned up with bleach on the floor and that these bloody footprints were leading away from the body and that the footprints were actually larger than the feet of the victim, the dead guy that's there. You see, the fact that you found evidence that somebody cleaned up bloody footprints on the ground and that the footprints don't match the footprint of the victim is highly likely that the victim did not commit suicide. Now we have a cause of death, of being murder. And you built this cause of death of murder up based by looking at all the evidences around and coming to the most reasonable explanation for this individual's death. You see, that process we just went through is called abductive reasoning. And again, it's looking at all the evidences, uh, the entire situation, and finding out what is the most reasonable explanation for this event, situation, whatever the case is. See, that's what Wallace explains here, but he doesn't leave it there because he actually takes abductive reasoning and moves on to what's called circumstantial evidence, or in other words, it's indirect evidence. Because now that we know that there's been a murder or a muck duck, and now that we know that there's a killer on the loose, we need to find out who the killer is. You see, a lot of times killers can be found even when there's no direct evidence, there's no eyewitness. So how do we determine this? Well, the killer can be found by what's called a preponderance of evidence that shows without a shadow of a doubt, or without reasonable doubt, that person X committed the crime. And so, so say they. the police came up this crime scene, they found out bloody footprints were cleaned up, couple uh, puncture wounds from a butcher knife, butcher knife lodged in the stomach, in a pool of blood on the ground. So the police department puts a inf- request for information out on this murder. Anybody that knows anything about this, give us a call. So say a caller calls in with a tip, uh, this is actually the neighbor of the victim. She says that she thought she heard a scream around one in the afternoon. And, and when she thought she heard the scream, she looked out the window and saw a tall man wearing a brown trench coat drive away in a white suburban. And so, this caller calls in with this tip with a tall guy with a brown trench coat driving a white suburban. So, from the tip, the police put a bolo out of be on the lookout. Uh, for all white suburbans in the particular area, they actually go to the d m v run the plates and everything for all the white uh, white suburbans, and then they go start talking to people So from all this, they discover the police discover that a white suburban is parked in a driveway in another neighborhood in the city. They go ahead and they knock on the door and guess who answers the door a very tall guy and so the police ask if they could actually come in and while they're inside, they notice that there's a brown trench coat hanging on the coat rack by the door. And by seeing this, the police ask the guide, where were you around 1 in the afternoon on the day of this murder? And so the guy explains that he was with his friend Jeff at the local pool while shooting pool. All right, so uh, just because he has a suburban and a trench coat doesn't necessarily mean he's the murderer. So leaving the residence, you know, the police end up they finding this guy Jeff, and they ask him what he was doing at 1 p.m. on the day of the murder. Well, Jeff actually talks about he was on vacation in another state. And this obviously doesn't align with the suspect's alibi of shoot and pull at a pool hall. Therefore, with this information, the police get a warrant for the suspect's arrest. And so once they arrest the individual and they go to his house, they search it. They found, again, the brown trench coat that's hanging on the coat rack. They also find blood that were was cleaned on the trench coat. They find blood that was cleaned from the upholstery of the suburban. And so they send the blood off to the labs and they find out that the blood from the lab work matched the blood of the victim. You see although there was no eyewitness of this tall guy with a brown trench coat saying this was Billy Bob Joe Bob Bill that did it, although there was no direct evidence or eyewitness of this suspect all evidence points to him as the killer. He lied about his alibi. His vehicle and height matches description from the tip given. He's got a brown trench coat. It was found on his residence, and blood was discovered on the coat as well as in the vehicle, and that blood matched the victim. You see, all this is considered circumstantial evidence, and while it's not necessarily enough to convict somebody with the death penalty. It could be enough for a jury to convict an individual with a life sentence for the murder of that crime, for the crime of murder. You see, this is similar to what J. Warner Wallace points out in Quote Case Christianity. Through abductive reasoning, you look at what the most plausible explanation for a situation is, and you can find the evidences through circumstantial evidence. And basically, what are the pieces that we have available... And do they point more towards answer A or answer B or answer C? So let's let's take a basic worldview question, and let's use this similar methodology as determining validity or reasonableness or rationality for God's existence. Take a basic worldview and question, and ask: Okay, how did the universe begin? How did the origins of life uh, uh, begin? So, using abductive reasoning, we're going to look at a few possible answers to the question. Either A, the universe was always in existence. In other words, it was always eternal. This is commonly referred to as the steady state theory. We could see that the universe was created by a cosmic event, which is really known by what's called of uh, the Big Bang Theory. And the Big Bang Theory really teaches that everything in the entire universe was condensed to a point so small as the size of like the freckle on your skin and that something caused it to bang and then you have this rapid expansion rate of the universe and everything evolved from there. But then you have another possibility that there was some kind of intelligence that created this universe and created us. So looking at these three possible explanations similar to natural accident, suicide, and murder, we have eternal universe, we have Uh, evolved universe, we have a created, designed universe. So let's look at these three. You see, the steady state theory, or the idea of an eternal universe, has actually been rejected by most scientists, whether they're an atheist, or a theist, a deist, a Christian, whatever the case is. Most people reject the steady state theory, and even scientific laws seem to contradict the view, whether it's the law of thermodynamics, law of entropy, conservation of energy, whatever the case is. So the steady-state theory has lost a lot of popularity. The second plausible explanation would be this cosmic event that happened somewhere about 13.6 or 14 billion years ago, that everything, again, like I said, was in a dense area the size of like the freckle of your skin or the pimp on your cheek or whatever the case is, and that there was some outside force that causes its expansion. But even that, that doesn't really answer the question on how did the universe begin? Because the question still remains, what was before that? What was before the point of singularity? What external force caused it to go bang? And so there's still a lot of unanswered questions, and that never gets us to the answer of how did the universe begin? The third answer, that of a designer or a creator, it really seems to be very far-fetched because it's not scientifically testable. You can't find empirical evidence per se. You can't put it in a lab and test it. So at this point, there's really two possible answers as to the origins of the universe. We're going to reject the steady state theory because most scientists, although, again, that's an appeal to popularity, but most scientists do reject that. A big number of scientists reject that idea. It goes against all the scientific laws that we know of that talks about uh, things go from order to disorder over time and the law of entropy and everything else. And so we only look at the Big Bang Theory intelligent design so now we're going to look at circumstantial evidence S- no one was there you weren't there I wasn't there scientific Bill Bob wasn't there either in the beginning so no one has direct evidence humanly speaking of how the universe began now I would argue that the Bible is an eyewitness account based upon Genesis and Jesus's explanations in the Gospels however we still see that theists Take the Bible and they put an allegorical spin to it. So, although I would agree and and subscribe to the fact that the Bible does declare direct eyewitness account, direct evidence, I'm not going to bring that in. So, let's look at indirect evidence. Let's look at circumstantial evidence. So, the first thing we'll actually look at is called the anthropic principle. Or, you're probably familiar with its terminology as being called the fine-tuning argument. Because when you look at the universe, you look at our bodies, you look at nature, you look at everything, it seems so amazingly delicate and so perfectly created. Whether you look at uh, irreducible complexity, specified complexity, whatever the case is, there definitely appears to be a design and a pinpoint accuracy to the creation and sustainment of life. We see this from the hydrologic cycle of the Earth and the waters and everything. We, we look at this from the scientific laws that are constant. The Earth magnetic field, how there's enough field and shield from the solar rays and radiation. The color of our sun, the distance of our sun, uh, sun from the planet. The fact of our planet being on an axle, axis, I think at like 23 degrees or something like that. All this is necessary for uh, life to exist on this Earth. And even with the Anthropic Principle, you have something called the Goldilocks Zone, which is pretty much, you know, from the Goldilocks and Three Bears, where Mama's porridge was uh, too cold and Papa's porridge was uh, too hot, but Baby Porridge, I guess it was, was just right. Goldilocks Principle talks about that the Earth is just right positioned from the sun to have habitable life. And so that's another aspect of the fine-tuning argument is the Goldilocks Zone. So it's commonly said that with the anthropic principle or the fine-tuning argument that the probability of us being positioned where we are to have such a fine-tuned design is 1 in 1 to the 138th power, or basically 1 in 1 and then 138 zeros behind it. That is well past mathematical impossibility. But just because something is mathematically impossible, evolutionists will rightfully argue, it doesn't have to happen over you know, constantly over time. It only has to happen one time. So whether something is considered mathematically impossible, an evolutionist or a naturalist will say, oh, it just needs to happen one time. Okay. So even with the anthropic principle or fine-tuning argument, in the Goldilocks zone, whatever the case is, it's still that. One time, that one in a billion shot that evolutionists have. Okay, so we still have Big Bang Theory for explanation of origins, and we still have uh, the idea of intelligent design. So let's look at a second piece of circumstantial or indirect evidence of the origins. Let's consider the concepts of metaphysics. Metaphysics, these are things that are outside the natural world. You can't touch, you can't taste, you can't feel, you can't smell, you can't see, whatever the case is. These things in metaphysics cannot be scientifically tested. Now you can go on a tangent about a lot of things about metaphysics, but all I really want to briefly touch on are a few different areas. Mathematics, laws of logic, beauty, and conceptualization. You see when you're looking at mathematics, mathematics is fascinating because you can't touch math, okay? You can't touch math, you, you can't see math, taste math, whatever the whatever the case is. Sorry, I'm starting to get hiccups a bit. You can symbolize math with figures, and that's what we see. We see figures that represent math. You see the number one, a plus sign, and a number one, and an equal sign. And that's one plus one equals two. Now whether the symbol changes from here in America, or in Africa, or over in China, the figures are just representative of the mathematical system. A one here is still a one in China, although the symbol is different. But no matter where you are in the world, one plus one is always two. It doesn't matter if you do the math today, 500 years ago, or 5,000 years ago. 1 plus 1 has always equaled 2. Now the figures and the symbols representing the numbers and the signs, they'll change. But the mere fact of mathematics being transcendent and always absolute has never changed. That's an amazing discussion. It's not that mankind has created number, because if mankind has created numbers in math, it would not be consistent throughout the time periods, throughout the cultures. If man created mathematics then man would have been able to change mathematics and it would have differed. Man never created math man simply discovered mathematics. That's the amazing thing once you really get to the brass tacks of it and you really study it out. See another thing about metaphysics is beauty. How is it that you and I can both look at a painting and I can tell you that painting is just beautiful. That's probably the most beautiful painting I've ever seen. But you would tell me, no, that painting is ugly. I don't know what you see in that painting. How is it that you and I can both look at a painting or a person or whatever the case is and have totally different views as far as whether something is beautiful or ugly? Or what about how the mind works? You know, not talking about the brine, the brine, I don't know why I keep saying, so if you're Brian out there, or Brian if you're listening, I don't know why, but every time I try to type brain, I type Brian, so maybe I have Brian on the brain. I have no idea, but regardless, uh, side uh rabbit trail. The explanation of how the human mind works is fascinating. Like I said, I'm not talking about the brain. Uh, the brain with the electricity and just how uh, the brain is made up in the different Uh, segments in the brain and different parts are part of memory or cognition or recognition or whatever the case is. I'm talking about the mind. How do we dream? How do we actually have the ability to rationalize and think coherently in our minds? How is it that we can use our imaginations purposefully? You see, things like that, you can't touch it, you can't taste it, you can't feel it, you can't see it. How is it if I tell you if you're listening, I want you to close your eyes. I want you to imagine a white elephant sitting on a park bench. How is it that you automatically had this picture in your mind, you drew this picture in your mind? Finally, what about the laws of logic? You see, the laws of logic, whether you look at the law of non-contradiction, the law of the excluded middle, or the principle of identity. Just like mathematics, these laws can't be touched. They can't be tasted, smelled, or anything. They can't be really tested in a lab for science. You can't do the scientific method on it. The laws don't even change. It doesn't matter whether you're here or in Africa or Ecuador or wherever you are. The law of non-contradiction is always the law of non-contradiction. Whether it's today, 500 years ago, or 5,000 years ago, the law of non-contradiction has always been the law of non-contradiction. Something can't be black and white at the same time unless it's black and white. That was a wrong, wrong example. It can't be raining and not raining outside my window right now or outside your window. It's either raining or not raining. That's it. Now, you can probably try to say, oh, it's misting or it's sprinkling, but it's still wet drops coming from the sky. You can't say that looking out your window right there in your backyard, what drops from the sky are falling down on your ground, and they're not. That's the law of non-contradiction. It's always been that way. Back to the origins. It's amazing when you look at metaphysics. It's amazing when you look at laws of logic, the law of mathematics. You look at how the human mind works, not Brian, but the brain, uh, the mind actually. It's amazing when you really... Look at that. We believe, again, there's two possible explanations for the origins of our universe, whether it's the Big Bang Theory or Intelligent Design. And again, we were talking about the fine-tuning argument, and we looked at that it's commonly reported that it's a 1 in 1 to 138th power chance of random processes to create the fine-tuning of the universe that we see today. Now, again, evolutionists would say you just need one chance, one time. Alright, but then when you consider the abstract, uh, you consider metaphysics, you consider metaphysics in the mind and conceptuality, and you look at beauty, and you look at math and laws of logic, and there's so many things. There's a mountain, mountain of evidence against evolution, and this amount of evidence seems very insurmountable. Because with the Big Bang and evolution, all it is is materialistic, and there's no rational explanation for how matter can create the mind. And that's one thing I love about Dr. Frank Turk and what he quotes, is really with origins, you have one of two things. Did matter create mind, or did mind create the matter? And everything we know of, everything we see, and even everything we read in scripture all points to mind has to create matter whether you're looking at the DNA and the information coded into the DNA in the cells whether you're looking at seeds and how information is coded into the seeds whatever the case is therefore the second answer seems to be the most plausible answer understanding there's a lot more than this natural world that we see empirical evidence is not all there is it's quite possible that there is something or someone that possibly created everything we know today. This thing or this person would, would have to be transcendent across all times into material because it couldn't be a part of the design that it created. So when you openly consider the evidence, and then you get into things like the Fibonacci sequences, or you look at fractals within nature, or even the Mandelbrot set in mathematics conceptualization, the cyclist process of nature, uh, constant scientific laws, and so many other things. When you're looking at the two competing views on origins, evolution with random process and chance, or a purposeful design by an intelligence, you would see that the most reasonable explanation is something or someone created it. Something or someone outside of the natural world. We would then consider all the logical philosophical ideas for God's existence to continue seeing how much more reasonable intelligence design is rather than the Big Bang. Because when you got the moral argument, you got the ontological argument, the epistemological argument, you got the teleological argument, the cosmological argument, all these point to the necessity of a God. A God. You see, so tying all this up, just as J. Warner Wallace's abductive reasoning and circumstantial evidence identified what happened to the victim, the butcher knife in his belly, the multiple stab wounds. So you look at the most plausible explanation, and then indirect evidence or circumstantial evidence was able to identify who the suspect was. The same methodology reveals the most likely explanation for the origins of the universe. And it's through the same uh, process through circumstantial evidence we can see through philosophical arguments and evidential apologetics that God's existence is the most reasonable explanation for everything we see. Abductive reasoning and worldviews are some of the strongest arguments for the existence of God. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago reveals the truth of Christianity. Seen by the law of non-contradiction, no two opposing religions can both be true. So whether Allah is God who has no son or Jehovah is God who has a begotten son, Jesus Christ. They're both differing views of God. They both can't be true. Either one of them is true, or they're both true, or both wrong. I'm sorry, either one of them is true and the other is wrong, or they're both wrong. They both can't be true. And I would posit, due to the fact of the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we see it throughout church history and the early church fathers and the anti-Nicene fathers as well, The belief, the teaching of extra-biblical documents, even those opposed to Christianity all assert that the resurrection of Jesus Christ occurred. Jesus Christ is who He said He was, and if He is who He said He was, we would all do well to try to see what He said about life, God, salvation, the afterlife, and everything else. So abductive reasoning. A purposeful methodology that J. Warner Wallace introduces, at least introduced to me, on finding the most reasonable explanation for the existence and the origins of the universe. And it doesn't even have to stop there. You can use abductive reasoning and indirect evidence to look at anything in life. And I imagine, like I said in the beginning, you probably already used this methodology in other areas of your life and situations experiences. What's the most likely explanation? When my kids do something or I find something's broken in the house, I use abductive reasoning to see, okay, what's the most likely explanation? Was it my dogs? Was it the cat that I don't have? Was it my kids? Was it one of the kids? Was it both of the kids? I go through that process as well. So I hope this was enlightening to you. Uh, Abductive reasoning is another thing to add into your apologetic toolkit. I could go on more and more, but again, I try to keep these podcasts, you know, kind of short and everything. We're at the 30-minute mark now. So... Uh, leave me a comment below as far as you know any of your thoughts on this subject or maybe how you use abductive reasoning in your own life and experiences. But again, as always, I thank you for tuning in and checking us out. Don't forget to just share this ministry. Get it out there to people that you know and you love to get the truth of God's Word. And don't forget to keep contending for Christ. Thanks for listening. We pray this ministry glorifies God and edifies you, the listener. For more great content, including videos, blogs, newsletters, and a free ebook, check out our website at c4capologetics.weekly.com. You can also email us at c4capologetics at gmail.com with questions or ideas for future episodes. We truly appreciate you. Please like, share, and comment on this episode, and don't forget to subscribe for future episode notifications. Thanks for checking in and remember to be bold and keep contending for Christ.